The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net. All right, so good morning. We're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are you to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him, Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. We thank you, and and this is the word of our Lord. Have you ever noticed that too much containment is a bad thing? Too much containment. So, for example, children who are too much contained, who are overly sheltered, you know, maybe who suffer from um, helicopter parenting, Studies show that they have a harder time maturing in later years because, well, they just don't know how to make decisions for themselves. Or you could think about the realm of horticulture, how uh, a, a plant, if it's only in a small pot, it never really grows past a certain size. And in fact, the crowded roots can even choke it out over time. Or you could take the principle to politics and think about how nations that focus only internally, only on themselves, domestic policy only, well, that sort of nation would quickly suffer from unexpected warfare, sadly avoidable economic decline. Well, what about containment of churches, churches that are only focused on themselves? Can insular churches, churches that are overly cocooned, that are myopically focused just on themselves, can they run into trouble? Well, I think this is a big piece of what was going on in Corinth. A preoccupation with their own sense of importance had led to infighting and moral laxity and fuzzy beliefs. And Paul's been spending the last 15 chapters confronting those problems, and now he's closing down this letter, and as he does so, he's intentionally turning their focus outward to the needs of the church at large. And this is a great model for us as well, because so many of our relatively small and self-centered problems could dissipate if we were to reflect on and participate in the broader church. In these verses, we'll see concern for other churches expressed through financial support, hospitality, the sharing of ministry progress, and also the mobilization of missionaries. It's kind of a peculiar passage to preach. It can feel like we're just kind of intruding into the in-house business of some local church here. 
Um, and I think that as we work to apply these verses, it might feel much the same, that uh, we need to get into some in-house business of our local church. So um, it's a strange passage from that sense, but we need passages like this to help us to assess our own church culture from time to time. So if you're one of those people who's kind of tempted to just sort of skim over those, those names and those details at the end of an epistle, I want to challenge you this week and next week to see the benefits of slowing down to realize that it's all the inspired word of God and even what feels like random details that can give us a glimpse into Christian ministry and its priorities. So Paul starts by speaking about plans for a big collection in verse 1. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Um, so this offering for the saints, it was a big deal. And we read about it also in the books of Romans and Second Corinthians. Basically, Paul's collecting relief funds for the Christians in Jerusalem who were suffering the financial fallout of famine and also just probably general corruption and oppression. So the good news of Christ had started in Jerusalem. We remember that even in chapter 15, we saw that all the testimonies about Christ's resurrection, those were from Jerusalem. And, and um, the gospel had come to Corinth and the whole Roman world from Jerusalem. So Paul wants the prosperous Gentile churches to feel a certain sense of responsibility toward those who first brought the gospel toward them. And if you remember, chapter 15 ended with this... Um, this strong exhortation. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so this collection is just such an opportunity to abound in the work of the Lord that is not in vain. We actually learn a lot about giving just from this passage. We see that the act of giving was part of their worship each Sunday. This seems to be a special offering that they were to save up for. Presumably it was in addition to a normal rhythm of giving toward the actual needs of the church at Corinth. And we see that all were expected to participate. It says, each of you put something aside. But we also see that there's no precise direction about an expected amount, right? That could fluctuate. It says, as each one may prosper. So if you were, for example, one of the many slaves in Corinth you would just have a menial income, but you were free to spend it as you chose. Maybe you'd just give one small coin, and that would be a beautiful thing indeed. Or if you're wealthy, if you were um, an influential person in um, high-class society in Corinth, you might make it a fun game with yourself to try to always be giving a bigger and bigger percentage of your income. Paul leaves it to the individual to discern and you can read more about principles for giving actually in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. And that section is actually still talking about this same collection. So I think this is as good of a time as any to ask about your giving. Do you enjoy giving at church? And I don't know personally how much you give or even whether you give. And I'm, I'm going to keep it that way. I don't want to know. But I do want to remind you, just as I would remind any room full of Christians who is going through a passage like this, I want to remind you of three things. 
First, giving is a normal part of Christian worship. It's not an add-on. And this isn't primarily because the church needs the money. It's because the act of giving is designed to remind you that everything you have is from God. Second, I want, I want to remind you that God loves a cheerful giver. If you're going to experience giving as a burden, then don't. Just don't. God doesn't want your begrudged gift any more than like your spouse would, would want fake or insincere words of affection. So just keep it if, if that's where your heart's at right now. And third, the measurement of success in the work of giving, it's not easily quantifiable, okay? If you're one of those people who loves specific benchmarks, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? You're not going to find that here. You're not going to find that anywhere. Now, you know, some people like to latch on to the concept of a tithe, um, and that's, there's precedent for that in the Old Testament. But I want you to know that that's, that's not a measure of your success in giving. Remember Mark 12, the story of um, the account of the widow's offering there? Jesus was watching the people coming into the temple, putting money into the box, and he saw a lot of wealthy people putting in great sums of money. And then he sees a widow come and put in two small copper coins, and he tells his disciples she gave more than all the rest because she gave all she had to live on. <laughs> the mark of success is not a successful tithe. It's not meeting a certain benchmark. The mark of success is a surrendered life. How are we doing in that department? A surrendered life, including our finances. Believe me, my aim in asking this is just your joy. So the Apostle Paul, he's being very intentional in expecting this special gift from the church at Corinth. And it's funny, if you remember back to chapter 9, we learned that Paul had been refusing for himself the financial support of the Corinthians. He knew that if he was to take money from them for his time in Corinth, then it would just kind of appeal to their pride because they'd be able to say, well, we, we sponsor this illustrious teacher. So he denies them that privilege and he goes to the marketplace and he earns a living sewing tents. It must have driven them crazy. But now, you eager Corinthian donors, who wants to set aside money for poor Jews in a backwater district of the empire? Any takers? Too bad. Paul insists that you give to this one. And why does he insist? Is it just a logistical thing? Jerusalem needs money. It has to come from somewhere. No, we should know Paul better by now. His purposes are always pastoral, always caring for the heart of the people. He wants to build unity across all the churches by showing that one church cares for another. He also wants the good news of Christ to really hit home in every aspect of their lives, even over their finances. In 2 Corinthians, he explains, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And it's out of those now rich souls that we give. It's not out of any pressure or obligation, but it's because every aspect of our life is becoming more gospel-shaped, including our finances. And the willingness to divest of resources for the welfare of others, that's just one evidence of growing Christ-likeness. We likely can't give every time to every cause, at least not to the same extent, but... If we generally lack generosity, 
if we part with our money begrudgingly, it could be a sign that we haven't truly been made rich in Christ and his, we haven't truly appreciated his divesting of himself at the cross. Because if we truly grasp the infinitely generous provision of Christ, then it'll transform us into people who generously and eagerly provide for others. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Especially to those who are of the household of faith. I'm so thankful that this is a church where the needs of those of the household of faith are noticed and acted upon. We take care of each other when hard times come. And as a result, the world can look in and see the love that God has created among us. So I want to commend you, church, and I want to encourage you to do this all the more. To share the burdens of those among us who are in need. The church leadership can notice the needs some of the time, but not all the time. Sometimes it's just a close friend or two who notices the need. And often the best solution isn't even some formal church action. So our thinking in these matters, it shouldn't be top-down, like, well, if nothing's started by the, the lead pastor, then I guess nothing needs to happen. No, we should all be looking for these needs and responding to them. Sometimes the best solution is just believers informally, maybe individually, maybe in a life group setting, maybe even anonymously coming up with a solution and taking care of it. Take, for example, the current need with Craig and Pam to, to host them um, post-surgery down near Mayo. Now, it's not going through the church accounts, but any who are able are encouraged to participate in that good work. So talk to Ryan. Visit the, the page, the GoFundMe page, if you're able to help out in that way. It's generosity like this that really proves that we have been knit together as family and that we really do trust God for everything. But this collection, in these verses, 1 through 4, it's, it's actually for the benefit of a church that they've never seen, for Christians that they've never met. And it's being asked of them at a time when they don't even really have their act together, as we've been seeing throughout the whole book. There are factions and scandals and debates, and surely some of them are probably thinking, like, really, Paul? Can't we just get our own ducks in a row before we start looking to support Christians around the world? Now, at that time, it would have taken people probably months to travel from Corinth to Jerusalem, and by comparison, in our day, I don't think it's outlandish to think about active concern for Christians in Ukraine or Sudan or Cambodia. And if we wait until things are all orderly here before we look outward, well, we're just never going to look outward, are we? But if we give generously out of a sense of unity with the global church, then it will have an astonishingly positive effect on us here on our unity here, on our vision for the gospel here in our local church as well. Do we think about the plight of Christians around the world? Do we? Do we even care? We as pastors have a desire to cultivate strategic partnerships with churches in other cultures and other social conditions. Now, no church can do it all, nor should they try to. And we can go slow and we can pray for this and work on building the right network Paul's Jerusalem Relief Project, it certainly wasn't just a, a spur-of-the-moment impromptu thing. It had a lot of planning, a lot of coordination. We can start praying that God would give us, as a church, 
a cross-cultural mindset, whether that means helping to plant a Spanish-speaking church in Joliet or partnering with a young house church somewhere like Turkey or Vietnam. If you want to start even just becoming aware of what needs are out there, I'd encourage you to visit the Acts 29 website and look specifically at two sections. One is called Emerging Regions, and the other is called Church in Hard Places. Emerging Regions, Church in Hard Places. Take a look at that. Well, next we see in verses 3 through 4 a helpful note about how the money is to be handled. He says, And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. And Paul wisely here states that, that people whom the Corinthians themselves choose will carry the money. I'm sure Paul knew a fair number of people at Corinth. I'm sure he could have picked honest people to do the work. He could have just said, you and you, you're going to take it. But the thing is, if those weren't the individuals who were most widely trusted by the church, they could have been suspected needlessly, and then this God-honoring offering could degenerate into a cause of division. So it was important for the Corinthians to feel a sense of ownership, a sense of understanding over uh, what's happening with the money. And the same is true here at the Source Church. If you're a member here, you have the right to understand how our money is being spent and to understand the process by which it's being handled. And if the Lord causes us to grow, then we'll need more finance-minded people to come alongside John Cratchmer to help build out those functionalities for our church. We take this seriously to the best of our ability. Not only do we need to do things the right way, but we also need to do things in a manner that gives the correct perceptions so that no unnecessary obstacles to the gospel will emerge. We don't want any distractions from the message of Christ. And let's be honest, keeping our finances in order, that's like a big way that we can serve the whole church, right? Because whenever there's scandal or even a lawful but seemingly shady movement of church money, it sends a message to the world around us that well, those Christians are just like everyone else. Maybe they're worse. They'll assume that this is just a big Ponzi scheme. You know, they'll, they'll assume that we're just like what they see on TV, the, the charlatans who call themselves evangelists. So the burden is on us to serve the church everywhere by staying above reproach in this area. Well, next, in verses 5 through 8, uh, we hear about the Apostle Paul's ministry and his travel itinerary. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. The Apostle Paul has said some harsh things in this letter, if you remember. He's had to correct the Corinthians in a number of ways. So it must have been a comfort for them here that he tells them, yeah, I am planning to visit you. He wants to visit this church that he started and that he loves. And all the ways that they needed correction, all the factors that, that as we read this letter, it might make the church at Corinth feel to us like a dirty church, none of that made their founding father ashamed of them. He's still eager to see them again. 
and as mentioned in the introduction to this letter, he knows that they are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. He has confidence that the gospel will win the day in their lives. But you do get the sense that for some in Corinth, perhaps they had hoped to see Paul sooner or that they need guarantees that his visit with them will be a long one. He has to explain himself because it seems like there's been an alteration to a previously discussed schedule. So he's going to swing up to places like Thessalonica and Philippi before he sees them again. I won't make too much of it, but I do think we see here modeled an expectation that churches need to be willing to share and to let go of their beloved leaders. And if and when those leaders go on to another station, there shouldn't be a sense of bitterness or of neediness in their absence. Ultimately, it's not any pastor that we need. It's, it's our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And if, for example, if all three of us pastors just up and left for another, another task, God's got us and, and he's going to provide someone else. That's all hypothetical, by the way. I just bought a house. I'm not going anywhere. Um, so don't worry. Um, I think that that's a good, just a good mindset to have, that these are God's people. He's free to move them as he sees fit. And you know, when, when his servants are moved around and our leaders leave our church for whatever reason, that can actually become the very means by which he does broaden our view and get us invested in gospel work in other places. I think we've seen that to some measure. The Apostle Paul does value those in Corinth as partners. Um, we talked about how he paid, pays for himself when he's in Corinth, but still here he invites them to help him on his journey, likely meaning supplying money, food, equipment, maybe arranging for travel companions. So this shared mission, um, their investment in his ministry, wherever it goes, uh, it's great for the Corinthians because it takes their money out of Corinth and it, you know, um, they can't use their money to try to gain status among their neighbors. They can't be proud of what they're building because they don't even see it firsthand, and they may never know all that those funds did or all that that help accomplished for Paul as he goes to these different places. And beyond just the material provision, Paul also just values them as partners in that he updates them about his ministry in Ephesus. He wants them to know and to understand his situation and this is, this is something they can join him in prayer about. If you read Acts chapter 19 about Paul's work in Ephesus, some crazy things are happening. Um, and the Corinthians would be filled in on more and more of those details by the men who carried this letter to them. The point is every church has a role to play in praying for the advance of the gospel. These verses might even remind us of those who founded this church and saw it through its earliest days. Men like Pastor Robert and Michael Collins and Adam Vega. By the way, Robert told me this week that Michael Collins is going to be moving down to Texas to join him in the work there. And then Adam will be taking over as lead pastor at the church in Mascuda. Well, wherever they're stationed, we want to always honor that heritage. And we want to seek updates. And we want to pray for the progress of the gospel at Mercy's Door Church and also Redeemer Georgetown. These men are always welcome to visit here. They're always welcome to preach from this pulpit because the Lord has stitched our story together with theirs. And so we want to look outward. We want to cheer them on, knowing that no church stands alone. Next, let's look back at verse 7 where Paul writes, 
I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. You know, as we look out on future ministry possibilities and on, on potential partnerships, this is a great way to speak, if the Lord permits. It honors him greatly that we have godly dreams, that we make specific goals, specific plans. But if we hold on to those plans too tightly, then we start to trust in our plans, in our leanings, and not in him as the sovereign one who has the right to surprise his servants. Another side note, we see here in verse 9 that the wide door for effective work is accompanied by many adversaries. And that may seem contradictory, um, like, Okay, which is it, Paul? Is it a green light or is it a red light in Ephesus? What's going on? It's both. It's both. It's not contradictory. In fact, throughout the book of Acts, we see that progress for the gospel and hostility against the gospel usually go hand in hand. They're interwoven. When Paul first came to Corinth, we read that many opposed him and reviled him, and they even brought him before the authorities on trumped-up charges. They even physically beat one of his friends in the city. But... In the midst of all that, the Lord appeared to Paul in a vision one night and said, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And that's exactly what it's like everywhere where the gospel gains a foothold. There are many appointed to salvation. They're there. They're just waiting to hear the good news to be found but there's also opposition that would naturally make us afraid. And this is all the more reason why churches have to take an active interest in the progress of the gospel in other places. And this is why Paul, for example, he wrote to the Ephesians on another occasion to pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. See, even the Apostle Paul needed prayer to keep going in his ministry. And so, if you're able to make it to the Sunday night prayer meetings, one segment of that time will always be devoted to the progress of the gospel somewhere beyond our own influence. Both that a wide door for effective work would be opened, and that our brothers and sisters there would be able to stand firm in the midst of fierce opposition. It's just a fact that Wherever there is opportunity, there is hostility. Wherever the good news of Christ is clearly spoken, opponents will arise. So let's pray. And the Corinthians can also help to further Paul's ministry by caring for his co-workers. Uh, we see this in verse 10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me. For I am expecting him with the brothers. Now it seems that Timothy's being sent to Corinth as, um, to sort of shepherd them through the content of this letter. And verse 10, it actually is a better translation in the NIV where it says, See to it that he has nothing to fear while he's with you. Well, that seems strange. Why would a, a Christian worker have something to fear when he's among a Christian church? I think this points back to the divisiveness in Corinth that we saw in chapters 1 through 4, that Paul had grown out of style with some, and some were preferred to think of themselves as being in the camp of Apollos or Cephas. And of course, none of those men desired that there be camps at all, but it shows how pride can create distinctions where there ought not to be any. And Paul's concerned here for Timothy that he's going to become victim 
to these sort of tribalistic hostilities. So he's warning them not to do that. The Corinthians were given to competing for status and judging people based on appearance. So Paul's direct, let no one despise Timothy. Um, Timothy was respected. There's no reason why he should be despised, but insular Christians are easily threatened by outsiders. Now this whole exchange kind of reminds us that Christian ministry is always done from a position of vulnerability. Those who serve the Lord in a new context, they're faced with challenges and insecurities and dangers, and it's a duty of Christians everywhere to welcome workers who come in Christ's name, to help alleviate those pressures, to honor them and to aid them in their task. And this is true if they're coming to work in our context. It's also true if they're just passing through. Obviously, the worker needs to be credible. This is why Paul commends Timothy to them, and that's why we need to be thoroughly vetting any Christian workers who would be received by us. In fact, the book of 2 John, it it goes there. It just urges the church to turn away people who are preaching a false gospel. The burden is on us to understand their message and to reject them if necessary. And then the book of 3 John goes on to exhort the church to receive even strangers who testify to the truth and to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Now, even in my short time here, I've heard of accounts of hospitality like this from the Thompsons, from Evan, from others. Opening your home, opening your schedule for others, those are some really practical but sometimes intimidating ways to serve. Let's abound in this work of the Lord even more as we remember how God in Christ has welcomed us to his table and welcomed us to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So in this passage, we've seen the Apostle Paul and Timothy. They're setting up plans for follow-up ministry in Corinth. They're also, they've also got new ministries to those in Macedonia. And Paul invites the Corinthians to join him in these efforts, not only through potentially hosting them well, sending them away well, also in joining in a big offering to unite churches by providing for poor Christians in Jerusalem. He also invites them to know and to care about his ministry in Ephesus and the very real hardships there. All of this together has the effect of drawing the Corinthian brothers and sisters up and out of their squabbles and hang-ups, up and out of their rivalry, their posturing, out of their worldly debates. It's a reminder that the gospel of cross and resurrection creates a people who die to selfish interests and take up an others-orientedness. And we can do that too. As we start to remember God's global church, and learn about and give to and pray for and serve strategic partners both here in the U.S. and around the world. Too much containment is not healthy for a church. Let's remember that what God is doing is much bigger than just this congregation. And that knowledge will help put things here in perspective. And it'll bind us together in greater unity. And it'll give us joy because we serve a great God who's writing a beautiful story that's way too big to be contained in any one local gathering. Now, these may not be earth-shattering reminders for you, or maybe they are, I don't know. Either way, they're good for us to see afresh in these, these verses, things like how we're to be generous with our money and time and energy and affections for the sake of the gospel, to be reminded that we should be thrilled and not threatened by the ways that we might have to flex, and we should be outward in our gaze, not protecting the comfortable community we're used to at all costs. 
but looking outward, being open to the change that God would bring. So please join me now. I want to spend some time in prayer for these very priorities. Our God, we thank you for this life-giving message of Jesus Christ that started in Jerusalem and it spread to the whole Roman Empire. And now it's reached us and it's changed us forever. And we want to be conduits of your peace outward from here as well. Lord, we pray for Redeemer Georgetown, which is set to launch in two weeks on April 3rd. God, we pray that that launch would be thoroughly successful, that the logistics would go smoothly, that many people would be drawn, including many non-believers. And Lord, we pray that the worship that occurs that morning would be in spirit and in truth. The songs that are sung, the prayers that are prayed, the confessions, the greetings, the word preached, we pray that your spirit would be at work through it all. And God, we thank you for the situation in which this church plant has been able to be incubated within the presence of another church for a time. And we pray that that relationship would continue to be strong and encouraging. Lord, we pray that you would raise up more operational and administrative skills in that church. We know this is an area where uh, Robert uh, doesn't feel strong, and so he longs for more help in that area. We ask that you would raise up volunteers among the people with those specific skills. And we thank you for providing for the Collins family and, um, and, and guiding them toward this transition. We thank you that you've already provided a house for them down there, actually in the same neighborhood as Pastor Robert. So we thank you for just the little details like that, God, that you're looking out for them. Lord, we pray that Robert would pray and work from a position of trusting in you, that he wouldn't frantically clamor about as we're often tempted to do when we feel like everything is up to us. Lord, give him and Monica a sense of rest and peace in their new situation. Give them good friendships within the church as well as wise counselors helping Robert from the outside. And Lord, we also want to pray for Mercy's door with, um, yeah, this transition might hit them hard. I don't know how much they're prepared for it. So I pray that um, you'd give Adam great humility and courage and wisdom as he takes over as lead pastor. And I pray for the congregants there that you would give them hope that their best days are still ahead that you'd use them to have a broad reach in that area. And we thank you, God, for their strategic location right near Andrews Air Force Base. Use them to bear much fruit. And Lord, we pray that you would show us how we can best come alongside these churches, but also show us if you would have us pursue new partnerships, either locally in the Chicago area or more distantly. God, we do pray for the city of Chicago we pray that all of its neighborhoods and suburbs would have a viable gospel witness, that there would be faithful, gospel-centered, word-saturated churches bearing witness and loving people in each neighborhood. Lord, we pray for the rural places in Illinois, places that everyone would just consider Christian, and yet the churches in them are dead. Lord, we pray that you would shake them up, that they would return to the preaching of your word, that they would want to know the full counsel of God, that your spirit would bring new workers, and that this faith would not be 
a matter of empty tradition in these small towns, but that it would become living and vital and challenging again. Lastly, Lord, we know your desire. Your desire is that this gospel of the kingdom would be preached as a testimony to every tribe, tongue, and nation. So give us a role to play in that work. A role that's not just throwing money at a problem or tossing up nonspecific prayers. God help the people in, in this place. But God, lead us to a, a specific partnership that you've prepared for us. Bind our hearts together with others through love and sacrifice with believers who are quite different from ourselves. And God, we pray that our church would be known for its radical hospitality and its willingness to flex in any way necessary out of love for Christ and deference to what unexpected things you might want to accomplish in our midst and beyond. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.